I'm Monica Lopez, and this is Making Contact. This week we present Sacrifice Zones by Barbara Bernstein. It's the first in a two-part series on the pressure to transform a region of iconic landscapes and environmental stewardship into a global center for shipping fossil fuels. Bernstein investigates how proposals for petrochemical development in the Pacific Northwest threaten the region's core cultural, social, and environmental values. And now, part one of Sacrifice Zones. There is this very unique place on Earth, the Pacific Northwest. It's either about to become steamrolled by coal and oil heading from North America to foreign shores, or it is going to stand up in an opposition movement and prevent those projects from happening. We're the choke point between Montana and Wyoming and exports for the rest of the world. So when these projects are trying to come through, they have to come through the heart of the Northwest. Every form of fossil fuel in one way or another has been proposed for export in the lower Columbia River. Here we are, sitting at this choke point, many of us concerned about climate change and uniquely poised to do something about it. No oil trains, no way, not ever, not today. You're listening to Sacrifice Zones, a story about the pressure to transform a region of iconic landscapes and environmental stewardship into a global center for shipping fossil fuels. If we think about two doors in front of us, one to the left is the door we open, and through that door is huge amounts of pollution in this region. Eric DePlace is the policy director at Sightline Institute in Seattle. We all have the biggest coal export terminals in North America, biggest oil by rail terminals in North America, biggest petrochemical refineries in the world, biggest liquefied natural gas plants in the world. The other door, we say no to all that stuff. And what we have is a Northwest that continues its environmental legacy and can continue to flourish. For a time, it looked like we were going to get dozens of trains a week carrying oil and coal down the Columbia River Gorge to any one of many points on the Oregon or Washington coastline. Dan Sears is the conservation director with Columbia Riverkeeper. It's an accident of geography that the lowest path from the middle of North America to Asian markets happens to be through the Columbia River Gorge. It happens to be lined with people who want something better, lined with tribal fishermen whose livelihood is made between the railroad tracks and the river. It's this narrow pass that they're trying to move through, and we are going to do everything we can to make sure it stays closed. The Pacific Northwest is looking at the equivalent of five or six Keystone XLs in terms of carbon throughput. That's in proposed projects that are new in the last few years. There's not a natural market for this stuff in North America, so they desperately need to get this infrastructure built between Coos Bay, Oregon, and Prince Rupert, British Columbia, two places that most people around North America have never heard of or never been to. But if they can't get their pipelines, their rail ports built there, they're out of luck. And so the net effect of winning all of those fights in the Pacific Northwest would be locking up a huge amount of carbon under the ground where it is safely sequestered from planetary harm. Bill McKibben came to Vancouver in 2013, right at the beginning of the oil fight. And he said, your geography is your destiny. And you happen to be in this place where all of you have this really large ability to shape what comes out of the ground, what can find a market. If they can't get it to the Columbia River Gorge, maybe it has to stay in the ground. And that's where we're seeing more and more effort going into holding what Eric calls the thin green line. Every time we see another wave of projects proposed, we're told that they're inevitable, we're told that they're actually good for us, and we're told there's nothing we can do about them. But what's happening is the thin green line is winning on every single project they're engaging on. So far, none of the projects have been able to get through. Nick Abraham is a research fellow at the Sightline Institute. And I think that's a testament to how little they help both these states, but also the level of opposition that they've come up against. 
Oregon and Washington had six coal export terminals. British Columbia had another four that were new or expanded terminals. Of those six in Oregon and Washington, four have already died. The last two are very much on the ropes. They have gone from being slam dunk proposals where there's nothing the locals can do to basically begging for any attempt to get through the permitting process. We've seen everything from agricultural interests to the business community who's concerned about tying up the tracks with endless coal trains. The tribes and First Nations have engaged to an astonishing degree. Lots of neighborhood groups who just don't want to deal with that kind of pollution. So I love the fossil fuel infrastructure fights because they really do surface this notion about how bad they are for us in so many ways. It's not just about climate change. It's about a hundred different things that we care about. It's not just our own homelands. It's affecting now all you folks. Kathy Sampson Cruzy is a member of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. The blinders have to come off. We see some of the wins that have happened based on treaty rights, on fishing rights that were so hard fought for. We know that their big shot attorneys are just milling over paperwork to try to erode some of those treaty rights now because it's been so strong in the fight against the fossil fuel infrastructure that is coming our way. The fossil fuel industry simply sees the Northwest as a throughway to pass this huge reserve of carbon in the middle of North America to the markets that want to burn it. The consequences of doing that would be to turn parts of the Northwest into, I think, sacrifice zones. A sacrifice zone is a short way to say, this is a place where we're willing to gamble and say, okay, well, we think one derailment and spill every other year, that's okay. Any region that becomes a sacrifice zone sees a lot of the risk, a lot of the harms, but very few benefits. So for example, the lower Columbia River could well be inundated with massive oil shipments of the attendant risks of oil spills, fires, derailments. It's very difficult to find any place on Earth that is home to a big extractive economy, particularly one based around fossil fuels, that sort of looks attractive, but also that is economically sustainable. Most of these places are boom and bust regions. Most of them suffer from decades, if not a century, of legacy pollution. Where these places are being permitted have a need for new, long-lasting jobs. And a lot of people see this as a potential boon for creating jobs in the state. Today I'm here to give support to the Vancouver Energy Project and urge the Port of Vancouver to extend the existing lease agreement. I'm concerned that the Port of Vancouver would oppose a project that has the great potential to create hundreds of high-income careers and millions of dollars in economic benefits to constituents of this commission, the City of Vancouver, and the State of Washington. The attraction that these industries sort of dangle in front of these communities is maybe it's 50 jobs, but the cost to those communities of siting a big coal or oil development there is enormous. And the locals get that. And in fact, what they have started to say is that you're not going to build a coal terminal in Portland, Oregon, because nobody would accept that there. You're not going to build a giant oil refinery or methanol refinery in Seattle because nobody would want it there. They're being targeted by a notoriously bad acting industry who wants to put this stuff in the most vulnerable places. No one wants to live next to a refinery. No one wants to live next to a coal-fired power plant. Pat O'Haran is the board president of Oregon Physicians for Social Responsibility. And the people that's happened to have been poor, people of color, indigenous communities. There's been a real push to turn the Pacific Northwest, and in particular the lower Columbia River, into the Gulf Coast on the Pacific, where it would be just littered with liquefied natural gas and propane by rail and oil by rail and coal terminals. And if all that stuff were to get built, it would look probably a lot like the lower Mississippi River. And when you travel down the bottom 70 miles of that river below New Orleans, what you see are you know, gas flares, refinery flares, and you see huge coal piles in the banks of the river. And you see a once rich ecological system and a once rich human community that has been systematically poisoned and abused to the point where it's barely limping along.
it's interesting that they chose to try and come through Washington, Oregon. It's almost a slap in the face to the reputation that these states have. Over the years, there has been heavy industry on the Columbia, and we've seen some of the negative effects of that. We've also seen the effects of damming the, the river for hydroelectricity. It's hard to compare anything to the kind of restructuring that the dams did to the entire Columbia River system. It turned a flowing river filled with salmon into a series of lakes that warm up in the summer to levels that are almost too warm for salmon to even survive. Fish and Indian people are taken together as our identity. Paul Lumley is a citizen of the Yakama Nation and was director of the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission from 2009 to 2016. The creator gave us these gifts, these first foods, salmon, the game, the roots and the berries, and said if you take care of these first foods, they will always take care of you. So when we signed the treaties with the United States back in 1855, we made sure that those first foods were protected. And there's very clear language in there that says the tribes have a right to fish at all usual and accustomed places. Well, back in 1855, I'm so glad that our forefathers protected us that way, but we never expected to see the river change the way it has with all these dams. We went from somewhere around 17 to 30 million fish in the Columbia River to just a couple million. When those dams were built, we lost tribal villages. So the sacrifices we made for the development of the hydropower system are huge. The hydroelectric system has done so much damage to salmon survival and salmon runs that we really rely on the lower part of the river and the estuary to provide that key salmon habitat for salmon recovery and continued survival in the Columbia River. In comes the fossil fuel industry and decides to plunk itself down right in the middle of the critical area where we were really trying to turn the tide back and bring salmon back in the wake of all the damage that the hydro system did. If we were to put on the banks of that river the biggest liquefied natural gas facility in the world and the biggest coal export terminal in North America and the biggest oil by rail terminal in North America and a couple of big propane by rail facilities, the toxic effects of that, the pollution effects on the river would in aggregate over time be profound. Over the last four or five decades, the tribes have made great progress in many areas in the Columbia River Basin to bring back the salmon. We have a lot of fish coming back compared to even just a decade ago. Generally in Indian country, when we're faced with big decisions, you look towards the next seven generations. When it comes to proposals like dams, fossil fuel, transportation quarters, I would hate to have the seventh generation look back and say, oh, I wish they had fought harder. I kind of say that now about those dams that were allowed to be built. What if we fought harder back then? But I don't want them to say that about my generation when it comes to coal and oil transportation to the Columbia River Gorge. I want them to look back and say, thank you for fending these proposals off. For the most part, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia have been leaders in charting a clean energy economy. Largely as a consequence of that, they don't look or feel like the traditional sacrifice zones as we've thought of them. Now, if the plans go forward that the coal and oil industries have, we could very much start to look like that. We'll definitely see more oil spills, definitely see more coal dust pollution. But right now, there's this astonishing contrast between the way that we think about the region and perceive the region on a daily basis and the thing that the region could become in the future. Emergency sirens roar at the Chevron refinery in Richmond while a fire at the refinery sends flames and a plume of thick black smoke into the sky. The alarm means shelter in place. August 6, I leave work and I saw this massive black cloud going up in the sky, clearly from the refinery. Andre Soto is the Richmond, California organizer for Communities for a Better Environment. 
and a founding member of the Richmond Progressive Alliance. I got a text on the phone from a colleague saying, call our members and tell them there's a shelter in place. A neighbor across the street came out of her house and shouted up at us, why are you outside? Don't you know that we should be inside? Why should we be inside? There's a shelter in place, she said. Steve Early is a Richmond resident and author of Refinery Town, Big Oil, Big Money, and the Remaking of an American City. That's how we learned that, you know, the emergency protocol when you have a huge refinery fires to go into your house and close all the windows and tape the doors. We took one look over the top of the hill here and saw Mount Vesuvius erupting, locked up, got in the car, went to Berkeley, <laughs> which ended up being downwinded. The fire was very scary. You could see this huge black cloud covering the city. Claire Brown is an economics professor at the University of California at Berkeley. We couldn't breathe, so I finally said, we should all go back inside, we should shelter in place. And you could look out the window and just see the dark air pollution everywhere and smell it, of course. Around 7.30, they had a press conference. Heather called the spokesperson for Chevron, gets in front of the cameras and says, this is a result of the environmentalists and the communities not allowing us to modernize our refinery. You know, Chevron definitely tried to blame the community's reaction to not, they're not making the upgrades that they had been requesting on the reason that this pipe corroded. The U.S. Chemical Safety Board did a thorough investigation and identified that it was management neglect overriding both their engineers and their workers' advice to replace a pipe in 1974. That was carbon steel, which has no resistance to sulfur in the oil. The Chemical Safety Board found that it had corroded down to being thinner than a dime. This is what ruptured. The workers, as the incident was going down, said, let's stop the operation, and management overrode them, said, no, full speed ahead while you fix the prop. That's what led to the leakage that ignited and created that cloud. There was a history of earlier incidents involving similar patterns of deferred and deficient maintenance. You know, Chevron, it appears, has long gotten away with whatever it can get away with. Prior to the 20th century, Richmond was really an agricultural community and pretty much stayed that way until the railroads came and the oil refinery came. Between the refinery and the railroad, the early development was focused on heavy industry, manufacturing of all kinds. You know, 100 years ago, there was certainly little or no consciousness of any responsibility to make any effort to keep the air or the water clean. Chemical manufacturers and other industrial firms shut down and left sites with contaminated soil and all kinds of EPA Superfund type problems for the people of the city to deal with. Richmond is the poorest community in the entire San Francisco Bay Area. Tom Butts is the mayor of Richmond, California. I think part of the reason for that is the fact that we've had a refinery here for over 100 years. The people with money and education don't want to live near a dirty industrial facility. So that means there's really no investment to upgrade housing stock and improve quality of life issues. On one hand, I think you could arguably say that having a refinery here holds Richmond back and affects our ability to function as a city. On the other hand, it's the source of a huge amount of revenue. Chevron is one of the biggest contributors to the budget of the city of Richmond. And even though we think they should contribute a great deal more given the health and safety problems they cause, 
Without Chevron, Richmond would have a very hard time providing its city services. Throughout much of the 20th century, Chevron was always very involved in Richmond politics. Chevron employees, managers would be part of city boards, served as mayors and city council members. Chevron was very successful in getting their candidates elected. So we had to start taking on those candidates by running people ourselves. Rather than standing around criticizing and pointing fingers and trying to influence people, the Richmond Progressive Alliance said, no, we got to get rid of people and put our people into place. The Richmond Progressive Alliance first fielded candidates for city council in 2004. Gail McLaughlin, a relative newcomer from Chicago, was one candidate, and Andres Soto was another. Gail won, Andres lost after serving successfully for two years on the city council. Gail ran for mayor in 2006, surprised everybody by winning. And one of the things she did was use the job of mayor, traditionally a part-time position, as a full-time organizer role to support a network of non-governmental organizations that were contributing in various ways to the transformation of the city. Chevron wasn't happy with the city council. They felt the city was demanding too much money. They felt the city wanted to regulate them more about emissions and health problems. So Chevron decided they would buy different city council members in an election. Chevron picked a slate. They put $3 million behind their slate. It actually motivated a lot of us to get much more involved in the election than we might have otherwise. And fortunately, voters got extremely outraged. It's like, okay, Chevron's spending how much money for this election? Chevron bought all the billboards in Richmond. They were sending out mailers almost daily. They had bought all kinds of media. They were on television. They were on radio. I think people just got tired of it. At the end of the day, when the dust settled, none of their uh, candidates won. We've come a long way in our awareness about climate change and greenhouse gas and air pollution. And we've also realized that we have to make Chevron accountable and that we can regulate them. There are clearly people here, I think, if they had the power, they would shut the refinery off tomorrow and rejoice. What I've looked for is trying to do what we can to make Chevron as safe as possible to try to minimize any adverse health impacts that come from Chevron, to try to get as much money as we can from them to provide programs and services to our residents, and over the long term, hope that the climate change policies that we're adapting in Richmond, that the state of California is adopting, eventually will phase this out. I think what Richmond really needs to do is plan ahead to shutting down Chevron because we won't be processing gasoline. We have to keep fossil fuels in the ground. We have to transition. So if you want to become an energy center, go renewable. You're listening to part one of Sacrifice Zones on Making Contact. Thanks to generous support from listeners like you, Making Contact is offered for free to radio stations in the US, Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows or get our podcast, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Coming up, a community in Oregon fights to keep a liquefied natural gas facility out of their area. Now back to part one of Sacrifice Zones. 
It's hard to imagine the coastal communities of Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia turning into fossil fuel centers like Richmond, California. So it surprised folks in these remote areas, once centers for fishing and logging, to hear that the ports in their towns were striking deals to build liquid natural gas export facilities. In 2004, I heard that there was this plan to build an LNG terminal. Cheryl Johnson was co-chair of Columbia Pacific Common Sense, a local grassroots group opposing liquid natural gas in Clatsop County. And in order to build that terminal, they were going to have to dredge the Columbia River. They were going to have to build a huge pipeline that would go through Clatsop County and through the state of Oregon. There was a company called Northern Star, mostly a group from Texas that came in and proposed a very large liquefied natural gas import terminal about 25 miles up from Astoria in the Columbia River, an area of the Columbia River that's not industrialized. Dan Sears with Columbia Riverkeeper. And it's in that really critical place where salmon are acclimating between freshwater and saltwater. Friends of mine who live in Astoria came to a meeting in December of 04 with the Port of Astoria and found out that they were in the process of signing a lease to build this terminal and there were no public hearings and they were deeply alarmed. So they began to investigate and find out what it was about and to educate the community. And then it was 2005 and there was a terminal proposed at Bradwood Landing. Bradwood Landing was very close to my home. And I thought, oh, I need to get involved in this. The liquefied natural gas import proposal at Bradwood was going to import LNG from overseas producers. The idea of becoming dependent on another foreign fossil fuel was drawing in a lot of opposition from kind of unusual cross-sections of Oregon. We organized three little workshops in our community to let people know what was happening. I don't think I even knew how dangerous LNG was at that point. Larry Kaplan was the other co-chair of Columbia Pacific Common Sense. But the disruption to the river and to the shipping, that's what just threw me. And I didn't get why anyone would want to industrialize the Columbia River in the estuary. Little grassroots organizations were popping up on both the Washington and the Oregon side, organizing to begin to figure out how to fight this huge corporation. The backbone of that campaign was really tribal fishermen, commercial fishermen, sports fishermen in the Columbia River, and then very rural conservative landowners who had farms along the pipeline route and banded together in this coalition. I think they thought they could fool us because it looks like we would be this town that was desperate and stupid. And what they found was that's not so. What we figured out very soon is that there was no way in the world that we could do this by ourselves. So we began to start looking for an environmental group in the Pacific Northwest that would work with us. Columbia Riverkeeper was the only environmental organization who said yes. Columbia Riverkeeper came on board. They provided some organizing expertise for us and a structure. And so this very beautiful, very powerful alliance came together with all of these little grassroots organizations on both the Oregon and the Washington side and Columbia Riverkeeper, who had staff to help us organize and most of all had very brilliant, very dedicated lawyers who would help us make us through the mazes of all of the state permitting and all of the times that we had to go to court. We would fill and overfill any public hearing that was held and generally the only people supporting the proposals would be union people from Portland and other places who had been paid. They were on work hours to come to these hearings and testify for the projects, and maybe one or two local people who usually never addressed the substance but just said, we need jobs. 
Clatsop County commissioners voted yes to permit the pipeline through Clatsop County. The boys from out of town basically came in their suits and promised them the sun and the moon and the stars, and they ate it up because it looked like fast and easy money. They all had binders prepared by the staff, three and four and five inches thick, plus all this other stuff to look at. And it was really clear they hadn't read any of it. As early as 2007, I was talking to some of these rural landowners that were very knowledgeable about the oil and gas industry, and they were saying, this is an LNG export project. All of these LNG terminals are gonna be for export. Gas costs three or four times overseas what it costs here. You wait, it's a bait and switch, they're gonna flip. Since about 2009, we've known that these were LNG export terminals. In about 2011, they finally admitted it. The people of Clatsop County, that is not what they wanted. And so then we thought, what can we do? How can we turn this around? And we ran a recall on the chairman of Clatsop County. And lo and behold, when the vote came out, we were successful, we had recalled him. In November of 2010, three of the five Clatsop County commissioners were up for election. And so we worked very, very hard to find people in our community who were willing to run. And we were hoping to replace one, possibly two of the county commissioners, and we successfully replaced all three of them. In 2011, the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality decided that the Bradwood Project would have a negative impact on salmon habitat in a very, very important salmon rearing area of the Columbia River estuary. And so they denied the Clean Water Act certification for the project. At the same time, certain areas of the county required a vote to change the law to allow pipelines to go through parks. It became this countywide referendum on LNG, and over two-thirds of the voters in Clatsop County voted adamantly to turn this project down. Right around the same time that they were getting a no from the community and a no from the state, the market was also evaporating. And so their investors decided that they couldn't make a go of it, and they pulled the plug. In 2012, the remaining two positions came open, and one of those commissioners had been the only one who decided to vote no. So we reelected him, and then one new one. And then in October of 2013, the Clatsop County commissioners voted 5-0 to zero to deny the pipeline for Oregon LNG through Clatsop County. On April 15, 2016, KMUN Coast Community Radio host Carol Newman interrupted the interview she was conducting to make this announcement. I just got a note and it says, I'm going to cry. I swear I'm going to cry. 12 years of our lives. It says Oregon LNG withdraws Warrington project. It is over, folks. It is over. So we're listening to some music about Highway 101. Yes, it's going to be our highway again. It's our community, and we've taken it back. Trimble down to Pistol River, Silver Sheen City Sun. Out on Highway 101. It took 11 and a half years, but it has triumphed. And it was only because hundreds and hundreds of people got so angry. Sacrifice Zones was written and produced by Barbara Bernstein. Next time on Making Contact. It's an accident of geography that the lowest path from the middle of North America to Asian markets happens to be through the Columbia River Gorge. In part two of Sacrifice Zones, the fossil fuel industry makes its first move on a major population center in the Northwest. Barbara Bernstein's Sacrifice Zones was funded by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the Puffin Foundation. 
This show was written, narrated, and produced by Barbara Bernstein. Original music was composed and performed by Barbara Bernstein and Floating Glass Balls. Special thanks to Dan Barris, Eric DePlace, Carol Newman, Peter Siegel, Steve Early, KMUN Coast Community Radio, Melissa Marsland, Jerry Mayer, Jan Zuckerman, and Bill Bigelow. To find out more about the people and organizations featured in today's program, check out radioproject.org. That's also where you can download a copy of the show or get the Making Contact podcast. Lisa Rugman is our executive director. Producers are Anita Johnson, Marie Che, and RJ Lozada. Sabine Blazin is audience engagement director. Development associate is Vera Tykolsker. And I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.